0: Hey people, Happy New Year and welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave behind. I'm Manda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility. And while I do still think there is time to create a future we'd be proud to leave behind, it does feel to me as if this year, the journey is going to be one of continual change and of greater challenge than we have already faced. I think 2024 is going to be the year when it will be impossible for anyone to pretend that the life we knew, the life we grew up believing would go on indefinitely, is actually still possible. The old order is dying, but if we're to avoid absolute collapse on a global scale, and clearly it is happening locally all over the world, usually pushed by the governments of people who are statistically most likely to be listening to this podcast. So I'm not suggesting that collapse is not happening, but I think there is a difference between localised collapse and absolute total global collapse. And if we're going to avert the latter, we need to dismantle the superorganism of the markets. Because it's these, markets, globalization, the entire neoliberal model of free trade that was not free ever, nor liberal in any way, nor particularly new. This is the common thread that perpetuates the world as we know it. Yes, we have to change our political systems, our ways of generating and distributing power, our food systems, all of these. But at the core, it's the markets and how they operate, our concepts of value and money, the ways we trade across the world, the entire concept that capital generates capital. This is what keeps the whole show on the road. And one way or another, this is going down Either there is a total crash and we are not prepared for it, or we succeed in managing a degrowth curve to create a much simpler system that is not just less extractive. It's too late to be slightly less damaging. We need the curve to move to something that is actually regenerative, that repairs the desperate harm that our species has managed to do over the last decades, centuries, millennia. So, in 2024, I want this podcast really to begin to look at how we could shape this downward slope, to play with ideas that could take us forward into something different, to begin to build narratives and stories and mythologies and collective heroic journeys of how we as a culture affect the change that we need. Because, yes, the superorganism feels as if it has a life of its own, but it is a system composed of individuals. And if we all change our behaviour, our expectations, our understanding of what's good and right and beautiful and what isn't, then it will change. I still believe this is possible, and I am definitely working towards it. As is, oddly enough, our guest this week, Diana Finch has worked in senior leadership roles in a variety of socially and environmentally focused non-profit organisations since two thousand and one. And through this work, she became convinced that our economic system is the root cause behind the environmental and social challenges that the nonprofit sector and the whole of the world is trying to address. She became interested in the field of new economics and then joined the Bristol Pound team as managing director back in 2018. And she continued in that role until the organization wound up last year. The experience of all of this helped her to develop an understanding of the problems within our existing economic system. And she went on to write a book called Value Beyond Money, an exploration of the Bristol Pound and the building blocks for an alternative economic system. The book isn't out until September and she and I will have another conversation around about that. But I read it early. And I was so struck by Diana's capacity to lay out clearly the various different ways that we have begun to see and use money and the alternative systems that people are trying to create, often against tremendous odds and barriers erected by the existing system. The Bristol Pound was an astonishing endeavour, and the story of how it came about and why it ended is remarkable in and of itself. But it's the ideas that come after why did it not work and what could we do differently now? What could help us shift from exactly where we are to where we need to be? These are the solid gold. And We did talk quite a lot about the Bristol Pound at the beginning. So the solid gold comes towards what I would normally consider to be the end of the podcast. And we went on because it did feel like solid gold. So we might have to split this into two podcasts. I don't know yet. If we do, it'll come as a bonus, I hope, but I am hoping we can get it all into one. So we're about to kick off into that, but just before, I am recording this ahead of our first gathering of the year, Dreaming Your Year Awake, and this will go out the week afterwards. So if you came, thank you. I hope it kicked off your year to a generative start. The gatherings we're organising this year are the inner work, which I believe is absolutely essential to giving us the grounding and the connections to each other and the web of life, that will let us step out into the world in a way that's healing for all of us. Next month, we have the first of our Cutting Edge series, and the plan with these was that you, the listeners, would have a chance to gather in a Zoom room and talk to some of the people who have been guests on the podcast, who are absolutely at the cutting edge of the changes we need to make. The idea was that we could talk to them, ask them questions for the first hour. And then in the second hour, we would talk amongst ourselves about how we make this work real in our own lives. I thought this would be fun and useful. And so far, we've had a lot of people sign up for the gatherings and almost none for the cutting edge. And that's fine. If it's not what you want, we will cancel and think of something else. So if you do want this, please sign up soon, because if it gets towards the end of January and there's no sign ups, we will just cut it. If there is something else that you would rather we do, something that's worth two hours on a Sunday evening, then do let me know. And if you're interested in the inner work, the gatherings on the podcast, go to accidentalgods.life, go to the gatherings page. There is an entire list. Right, here we go. Kicking off with how we actually make the change, let's explore the ways that we could dismantle the superorganism. So people of the podcast... Please do welcome Diana Finch. Diana, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast and Happy New Year. This is our first one we're actually recording in 2024. How are you and where are you in this new year?
1: Hi, Amanda. Well, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. I, I sort of couldn't believe it. Um, anyway, yes, I'm in Bristol. I'm well and happy. And I'm thinking, 2024 has got to be better than 2023. Uh, so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the year ahead.
0: Well done. Oh, I'm very glad somebody is. I, I keep thinking that we're going to look back on 2023 as the last year of even remotely normal time. But if you think 2024 is going to be better, then we can help to make it better. It certainly feels like to me as if 2024 is going to be the year of tipping points, and that one of the tipping points could be we get to the point where most people understand that there is a crisis and that the only way through it is to get together. You've written a really interesting book, which is coming out later in the year, Value Beyond Money, an exploration of the Bristol Pound and the building blocks from an alternative economic system. Yes. And it seems to me, if we are going to get through to a tipping point where people realise that everything is different, one of your colleagues at the Bristol Pound recognised four areas that needed radical change, and they were economics, politics, food, and power, essentially, which seems to me a really good baseline. And of the four, the thing that glues our existing business as usual, extractive culture together, is money and economics. And you have been really totally embedded in how these could be different, So I'm glad you were surprised that I asked because that's very sweet. But actually, of all the people I've spoken to, you seem to know most and best and to have thought most cleanly and clearly about how we could do money differently. So just very, very briefly, could you tell us how you came to be thinking about those kind of things? Because most people just spend money and try not to run out of it. And that's as far as we get. But you thought more deeply. How and why did you get to think more deeply?
1: Well, I guess it started really when I was a child. And I remember thinking quite clearly that there was stuff I could see, like trees and plants and, you know, the cats or whatever, you know, real stuff. Um, And that wasn't man-made. Then there was a layer of man-made stuff that I could see, like cars and roads and houses and that was definitely man made but it was still somehow visible but it was still difficult to imagine life without it and then it felt like there was this sort of invisible layer on top of that again which was basically um all of our human systems and that includes money and the economy although I don't think I had such a i don't know didn't have the same understanding of it if you like that I have now but also education and healthcare and lots of other systems that we live our life through, that it's really difficult now that they've been invented to imagine how do we do without them. So, I mean, I remember specifically thinking about healthcare, for example, and thinking, oh. you know, 200 years ago, people just died because they didn't have antibiotics. Like, what the hell was that like? You know, I'm used to the yeah. idea of if I am ill, I go to a doctor and hopefully, as long as you know, as long as things are working well, which they're not terribly at the moment, with a doctor's strike going on, but and with chronic underfunding over many years. But anyway, that's another matter. Um, so yeah, I had this this feeling that that the human stuff was a sort of extra layer hmm. that ideally we probably wouldn't have, or, or that it it somehow got in the way of our ability to mediate with, or understand, or connect to the really fundamental things. And I also had a feeling, and I think you were mentioning this before we started to, to record, one of the early little bits in my book is where I describe how in a science lesson, we've been learning about combustion of fossil fuels. And I, I put up my hand and said, well, that must mean, you know, given the amount of fossil fuels, this was back in 1978, it's obviously already huge. And I put up my hand and said, my goodness, we must be changing Earth's atmosphere because she had gone through the whole equation, right, of carbon dioxide and you know, oxygen in and water and carbon dioxide out. And um, and I thought, oh, well, that may be wrong now, but anyway, it's definitely carbon dioxide out. Oh.
0: I think it um, is, you're right.
1: <laughs> and so I put up my hand and said, you know, we should be worried about this, right? And the teacher was like, oh, don't be silly. You know, the world is huge. You have no idea. Us human yeah. beings couldn't possibly affect all of that. And of course, now we actually call this phase the Anthropocene because it is caused by human beings. And that's mm. understood by most people, you know, accepted by all but a few people now that you know this understanding.
0: And you had it when you were twelve. And and you were understanding the intangible systems, which is remarkable. So having got these understandings can you give us a very edited highlights of what led you to working with the last five years you've worked for the Bristol pound you worked for it until it ended last year what was your journey to that being the place where you thought that you could exert most leverage
1: hmm well I guess I had started off how most of us start off when we think oh my goodness global warming or habitat loss or whatever you know how can i minimize my impact so i started to do things like oh refill my bottles of washing up liquid at the local health food store and uh, walk around town with my toddler on my sh- on my shoulders and my baby in a sling instead of you know buying a car at that point point. and you know I-, I did what i could to minimize my impact And then actually real life gets in the way sometimes and you can't always do all those things that you want to do. You know, we can't all be as perfect. We are living in this system. And actually, at some point, um, you know, every day, I found that I wasn't really able to live in line with my with the values I wanted to to live by. And I also started to think it's not enough just to limit what I extract or take out or consume. I also need to think about what I'm putting into the system, mm. and I had started off doing bookkeeping, and I, I was working. Yeah, I was basically working as a finance manager in in the commercial world, right? Helping companies make money and get right. bigger. Okay. And and I thought, hmm, this isn't really what I want to be doing. It's a skill I mm. have, but it's it's not actually on the right side. You know, it's all part of of the extractive economy, and actually. I would like to be doing something more positive with my time. And so I decided to work with charities. And you know, there are finance jobs in charities, right? And I thought at least then the purpose of the work that I'm supporting with my finance work is, you know, some of them were environmental charities, some of them were social um, welfare charities. And that felt good for a while. And I worked my way up. I was CEO a few times of, of local charities and and then I started to think, you know, it's getting a bit repetitive. No matter how many people we help,
0: right? You haven't gone upstream.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just felt like here I was pulling pulling bodies out, as you say, of the of the river, and someone else is throwing off a bridge upstream, yeah. and and I needed to go up there. And so when the job at the Bristol Pound came along, with some of those very early thoughts that I had been having about, hmm, I think this is about the economy and here's a non-profit group trying to do something about the actual underlying economic system. I thought, okay, that that is very interesting. And, and that's the thing I would like to do. So that's how I got there.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Yes, and early in your book you say, and the, and there I was in the, in the world of spreadsheets and accounting and I was really comfortable and that it does weird things to my head because spreadsheets make me go into whiteout. I can't stand it. So I'm very impressed that there are people who can do that well. And that you had identified that this was an area where you would be going upstream. And so for people listening who are not familiar with that metaphor, it's it's a very old one in social science that you can do the work where you see somebody floating past in the river and they're obviously drowning and you jump in to save them. And then you just get them to shore and then there's somebody else floating past drowning and you jump in to save them. You get all your friends and you're all jumping in to save people. And at some point, one of you has to go upstream to find out why all these people are drowning. And that's exactly what you find. There are people throwing them in the river or they're falling because someone's destroyed the bridge or whatever it is, you've got to do something more systemic than just trying to play whack-a-mole with the latest problem. And there's very little that is more obviously systemic than money, as we were saying at the start. So the Bristol Pound was a very ambitious, very interesting and for a while highly successful and worldwide recognized worldwide, attempt to create a local currency. Can you, before we really look at the specifics of Bristol, give us a bit of an idea of what local currencies are for and what alternative currencies in general are and how they work? Because you explain this in your book as succinctly and cleanly as anything I've ever read. So let's go for it because people can't read your book quite yet.
1: There are so many different types of local or complementary alternative currency, and they're often just talked about as if they're one thing, and they aren't. So let's start with what Bristol Pound was, which was a currency to help localise. And really, this thinking came out of the kind of transition movement thinking, which is, it, it was really sparked, I think, by the fact that in around 2003, if you were looking at a pie chart of oil use, more of it was being used on transportation than on production for the first time. And so there was a feeling like, "Mm, if we're going to tackle fossil fuel use and try and bring it down to a global warming and all the other negative uh, impacts of fossil fuel use, let's start off with trying to localize things as much as possible. If you can bring production and consumption closer together then things don't have to move around as much Uh, and there there are two ways of doing that right there's a kind of top-down way which I think is very unlikely to happen where the governments say do you know what we don't really want exports and we don't really want imports and what we really want (laughs) is for farmers to understand the needs of their local um, conurbations and plan Uh, to meet the needs of local people. And we're going to choose building construction methods that use local stone and local, we're not going to... Basically um, what the world
0: did for thousands of years until we've discovered ways of transporting stuff that was much cheaper.
1: Exactly. And I think the reason that governments are very unlikely to do that is precisely because they see it as, as going backwards. You know, well, it's brilliant. Now we've got steel and glass, and we can do this, and we can make concrete, and we can travel it all around. And yeah, you know, but actually, it's it is a a, a very inefficient model uh, in terms of the amount of resources that get get wasted. Permaculture and other localization approaches really say, let's look with what we've actually got right mm. here. And let's try and work with nature, minimize our minimize the inputs that we need into nature, minimize the outputs that we're taking as well, and try and live very much more in harmony Mm. with with our locality uh, and with you know with the, the land that is right here.
0: Right.
1: And the two areas in which that can be the most useful are two of the things which are very fundamental to us as human beings, which is food. And construction and actually if we could localize those two huge sectors first they are the biggest in terms of movement of materials like clothing is is also way up there but it's harder I think to imagine how we do clothing without uh without so much movement of stuff all around the world it's a slightly harder problem I mean, all of these are hard problems. I don't want to make it sound like any of them are easy. But they're easy. also essential.
0: If we don't address these problems, yes. we're going over the edge of the cliff. So we're, now, we're up against biophysical realities where, whether governments like it or not, we have to address the issues that you're talking about. So how does a local currency of some sort, because Totnes was the centre of the transition town movement and and was also the originator of the Totnes currency. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about how that worked and why it was useful in localising.
1: So the idea of this is instead of expecting governments or someone to impose a load of stuff that forces businesses to to operate differently. Instead, this is saying, how can we encourage, encourage this from the bottom up? How can we change consumer demand so that they want to buy local things and then ensure that money can only be spent on local things? So that was that was basically the premise behind both Yeah, the, the original Totnes Pound. The Lewis Pound was also very early on. And then uh, there was Stroud and Brixton. And then Bristol Pound came on board. Um, it was launched in 2012. But all of them have that same idea of you'll have business members and the only members that can be business members or the only businesses that can be members rather are local businesses. And yeah. then local people buy the local money just as a one to one exchange usually some have a have some kind of incentive in there as well so you get a bit more um whatever pounds than 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 sterling that that's one of the ways it can operate and then that can only be spent with the business members and meanwhile you want those business members to change their supply chains so that they are also spending that money on locally and it makes it visible and with the paper money it makes it very visible in the shops if that's how you're paying people go that's interesting. What are you paying with there? You know, is it, yeah. it, um, but we also had we were the the first to launch with a digital currency as well. Um, it was very basic when it first came out. It was just text messages, really. Uh, so you could go into a shop and send a little text message, which was sort of text one two three four. You know the short name of the shop and you know but it was be a bit but
0: then smartphones didn't exist so actually that was highly advanced technology for the time we just forget
1: yeah, exactly exactly it was um technology that had already been used by M-Pesa in Kenya I guess
0: let's let's take a step back before we go into that because this is beginning yeah. to look really deeply at the Bristol pound because I think it's quite interesting for people who don't spend their lives thinking about this this concept of localization and Because it's worked very well, for instance, in Preston. As far as I understand in Preston, they haven't created a local currency, but they have created localization. In order to... Certainly the way that I was taught it was if you consider the local economy as a leaky bucket, you look at the places where value, which is to say money, leaks out. So in our local area, one of the ways it leaks out a lot is that the county council pays somebody out of county to hire... People who are also out of county to come and mow the verges, which is, you know, first of all, we don't want our verges mowed. Thank you, please leave them. And second, why are you? Why have you got this huge chain of middle people, and then people driving tractors very long distances to come and mow the verges when there are people in the village who could do it just as easily? So, by looking at the the ways the bucket leaks, and then looking to see is is there a reasonably decent way of doing this locally, you can begin. To ensure that local money is spent locally. And then can you discuss or describe for us the concept of the velocity of money? Because I think that's really important and gets to the root of one of the functions of what money is there for.
1: Mm -hmm. I just want to recap very slightly though on before I go on to velocity. Remind me if I forget to go back to velocity. The the leaky bucket concept is, is very relevant to here actually. So If I go and spend my money at Tesco's, a little bit of money stays to pay the shop assistant's wages who just served me and the landlord who owns that plot of land where that Tesco's is built. But they might live in Saudi Arabia. They might well do. Um, And a little bit might happen to go on local supplies of cheese or vegetables or something. And the rest of the money just leaves the local economy instantly. And goes off to global supply chains, the CEOs, um, paycheck and yeah. shareholders' dividends, the other side of the world. And um, and so it was the idea of the localization thing is partly reducing carbon, reducing the transport and and having that kind of, as I say, sort of more of a permaculture approach to to being in connection with our land and using that. I mean, it also comes up in bioregions, right? That, mm. that each bioregion is serving it itself and yes. um, as an idea. And so that's one thing. But the other thing is stopping the money leaking out. And you said money equals value, which we'll come back to because it doesn't have I, to. I disagree with that. Okay. Um, but yes, given that that's how most people and uh, you know that's how it's talked about the whole time uh, in our current society, money equals value mm. and value equals money and so
0: except when it doesn't obviously yes
1: but so if we can trap that money in the local community that's a good thing yeah. it it means that just like the land is serving the people the money is serving these people in this locality and often i think for example councils and we'll come back to preston which is great but you know often councils are thinking well, we've got to create jobs we've got to create jobs in bristol let's look like we want inward investment into Bristol so that we invite the big companies here and they're gonna employ lots of our people. And that's giving people in our city jobs. And that's a good thing, right? That's making Bristol richer. No, it's not.
0: No, It's employing
1: some people in Bristol, but actually the profits from all of their hard work are instantly leaving the city. Hmm. And actually the only way to grow real wealth within a city is for it to be organically grown for little local businesses, to get a little bit bigger and for other little businesses to start off. And they're all um serving the local community and helping it to feed itself, yeah. source itself, or whatever, you know, um maintain itself better instead of being reliant on chunks of money coming in, which then go away and suck even more money out than they originally brought. Right. And and this is how a lot of international aid works as well, of course. We we say, here's a lot of money to go and do something in your developing country but mm. then we use the wrong kind of technology that means that actually we have to keep parachuting in the people to do all the hard work and you know meanwhile we own all the things we employ some local people and give them some peanut wages but actually all of the all of the profits are being sucked back out into the rich countries and then funnily enough those countries carry on being in debt and mm. and unable to meet their own needs forever because yes. we've made them dependent on us at, at their expense so anyway
0: we were going to talk about the velocity of money
1: yes velocity i'm glad you took me back to velocity and i think this is easily explained actually with another another sort of local currency which some of your some of your listeners may have heard of the idea of either lets a local exchange trading scheme or time banking and if we imagine one of those little very localized alternative currency schemes the idea is that you get a group of people, each with different things to offer and different needs. So I might have an allotment and I might have far too many courgettes at a certain time of year. And then I kind of sell my courgettes within the Let's scheme. And I get given some kind of tokens in in Bath There's a Let's scheme and they're called Oliver's. So I get my Bath Oliver's and then I can spend them on a friend who is going to help me put up some shells and she's going to bring around her tools and everything and and you know i'll be her assistant for an hour while she puts up my shells for me because i'm rubbish at that and and so the money can circulate and then maybe she's going to spend that money on with with someone else who's going to walk her dog for her she was too busy to walk her dog she was putting up shells for me and uh and so on and so the money moves around now you can imagine and this was the example i put in the book that if you imagine three people and, and they're each sort of passing on 10 10 lets, 10 lets, 10 lets, 10 lets to to do different things. By the time we've done that, and three days have gone by, and the money is all back in Manda's account. Manda has started off with 10 euro, 10 lets, and manda now has 10 lets in her in her account still. So you could say nothing has happened, but actually, what has happened is that you have um managed to get someone to help put up your shelves um they've had their hair cut they've received some, you know the next person has received some courgettes and so on which were maybe and it's just people. gone round
0: in a circle and the
1: money has gone round in a circle and it's yep. done 30 lets worth of work over the course of 3 days even though if you take a snapshot of where everybody is it's like oh nothing happened you know you yeah. started off but you know these things have happened the you know the shells have been put up the 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 hair has been cut the Courgettes have been um, eaten, and and so on, and so the velocity is really telling you how quickly the money is circulating, and the quicker it circulates, the more work is being done by that mm. money, and the more value is being created, not in terms of money being created, but in terms of the the effects of what that money has enabled in in terms of transactions, work being done. Um, yeah, and
0: social and, impact. Yes, exactly. And and people having a sense of value. And I think the thing that also always seems to be quite important is if the person at the start had decided to stick the 10 lets in a bank because it matters to save and done nothing with them, that money has zero velocity and has done nothing useful at all. So the circulation of money is really important. I think on a larger scale, this is where people get very stuck when they want governments to be paying off debt that a government's job is to increase the velocity of money and make sure there's enough there to flow around it's not you know it all comes back to the government provided there's no big leaks which you know this government is creating enormous leaks but in an ideal circumstance there's very little leakage it all comes back to the government in the end this idea that we can't afford stuff is bizarre it's mm. it, what you want your government part of the function of government is to create the velocity or to create enough to prime the pumps so the velocity can happen, yes, and then and then block the leaks. So so yes, thank you.
1: Oh, that, a last point on velocity. So one of the things that people might have heard about in relation to some alternative currencies is an idea called demurrage, yes, which or demurrage. I've also heard it from If you're in I have France, no idea yes. how how people like to pronounce. It. Anyway, it, but the idea is it's like a negative interest rate. Yeah. So that as you're saying, if you put money in the bank and and save it up for a rainy day, it's not actually doing any work. We're all told it's a good idea to have some money in the bank for a rainy day to, to add to resilience. But just storing loads and loads of money that you don't need as a little you know resilience thing is just a um, it, it's not doing anyone any favours. And so the idea of demurrage is that you need to spend your money quickly because otherwise it will devalue. Yeah, it's
0: negative inflation in a way, isn't it? It's-
1: exactly. It's like spend it quick. And so some of the I was saying that some currencies, for example, give you a bit more than you paid for originally. But then one of the downsides might be that those same currencies might well then make your money disappear quicker if you don't spend it quickly. But each time it's spent, it kind of regains its full value. There were also script currencies that were like this where they would be on bits of paper. But they would get a stamp every every week or something, yeah. and each stamp would reduce the the value of the yeah. of the money. And again, so these were these ideas have been around for a long time um, and played with by different people in different parts of the world at different times.
0: And in a way, if inflation creates inbuilt demurrage or whatever however you want to pronounce it to our currency. Because if I were to hold on to hundred pounds that I had last year, and inflation is running at five percent, it's it has lost five percent of its value over the year, which I think is one reason why people who think capitalism is a good thing don't like inflation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because it, it creates the desire to not hoard your
1: capital. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I think how and why inflation exists, it, it hasn't been invented to help velocity um but maybe we should leave that there because i will quickly be out of my depth if i try and go (laughs) i
0: I think inflation is a fascinating thing because the (laughs) narratives of why inflation happens always strike me as as being entirely wrong however let's not go there because this would get very technical and other than you and me nobody else would be interested whereas i think the idea that the money that we spend at the moment is not the only kind of money and is not necessarily the best kind of money, and why other kinds of money might be better, is, is going to be crucial to how we get through the bottleneck we're at at the moment. Because I would say fiat currencies are going to collapse. And given that they're going to collapse, and fiat currencies are the dollar, largely, but sterling is still a fiat currency just. Liz Truss did her best to undo that, but she failed. If sterling or the dollar collapses, what are we going to do? and having ideas, at least, of what else could step into the breach is going to be really important. And the great thing about things like the Bristol Pound is that really dedicated, very hardworking people put a lot of thought into how it could work, and you were one of those. So let's talk specifically about the Bristol Pound, what it was and how it worked, and why it worked. Okay. And and where. The, let's have a look at the road bumps on the way, because I think that's really interesting, Is what got in the way of it working as much as what helped it to work?
1: I think it's worth starting off with the with the fact, in fact, it was not just an idea, it was a fact that originally it wasn't just going to be the Bristol Pound, a currency for localization. There was also going to be a mutual credit scheme alongside it. Right. And mutual credit, a, a lot of currencies actually that have been created at various points, uh, especially in periods of recession or where there's a, a liquidity shortage of money, bank money, if you like, or a fiat currency, people have developed mutual mm. credit systems. One of the famous ones was the Virgil experiment in the 1930s in the midst of the depression. Yeah. And it was so successful in the, in the space of a few months of getting bridges built and all sorts, you know, generally getting everything working in the middle of, of a depression where nothing was working and no money was flowing. That the the governments got shut very yes got yes. very anxious about losing control of their monetary systems yes. and therefore shut it down. Yeah. There are others which haven't yeah you know, been shut down in the same way. That in more recently it was in the early two thousands. There were the Palmas, which was again a kind of a, a made up. It was basically a form of mutual credit. I would say in that it was. Money creation that would pass around. Where was that? In in Brazil. Okay. And then there's, I mean, another. It's arguable as to whether that's really mutual credit. Maybe that was just an injection of made up money. But one that definitely is mutual credit and that is still going today is Sardex, which is it's used by. Was looking up the stats the other day. It's something like forty thousand businesses across Italy are now part of the Sardex system. Right.
0: Right, and it started in Sardinia. It
1: started in Sardinia. Uh, as a way of and again it's that same idea that i was talking about earlier on with you know if you've got 10 lets and you pay them to a friend and pay them to a friend and you know they pay them to another and then it comes back to you well the mutual credit is basically that same idea but business to business generally right. speaking so right. um you know if 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 you've got invoices and you can see a loop of businesses that are all connected and you can say, well, you know, actually, now that I can see this loop of he owes him this and he owes her that and she owes those people this much. And, and you can kind of go, OK, well, actually, we, did, we can knock off 200 quid for starters and just mark those as part paid and tell everyone how to do that. And right. there's a guy called Thomas Fleischman who has been really cutting edge in terms of developing systems where you get everyone to load up their invoice data. And then you run an algorithm that goes, okay, well, these will cancel off. Here are these loops. And then tell everyone, okay, these are the things you can mark as paid. And actually, you've still got to pay these guys and these guys. And this this invoice is now discounted because it's part paid. But, you know, so you do all those. Everyone does their, their entries. Can we unpick it a little
0: bit? Because I understand it because I read it in your book. But I think, can we give, in the same way that we had one person wants her shells put up and the next person wants her dog walked and the third person wants their hair cut and the fourth person has crudettes and the, the money flows around in a circle. Can you just give us a kind of a businessy example so people can picture this?
1: Okay. So let's say, and I did actually put it, I, I decided on an example in the book. Let's see if I You're can remember. You find it. It's something, no, don't worry. I expect to, I'll, I'll, I'll just make it up if it doesn't work. Let's say, I'm, I'm a farmer, Right and i'm selling some cheese that i make on the farm to a local shop and meanwhile that shop um sells a bunch of their stuff to a restaurant and then the restaurant creates some ready meals that actually come back to me at the farm because i've got a kind of camping thing on the side and i'm i'm doing ready meals for campers and so well it's it, it's not the same one as I did it in the book, actually. But, and so the the money is moving round in a circle, and it's coming back to me. And I'm, I might not know that middle shop or that middle restaurant. You know, like, there there might be some people in there I don't know. The the loop might be a lot bigger than I can see. And in fact, arguably, if I could see the loop, I wouldn't need the currency. And I think yeah. this is what you often find at the end of let schemes and time banking schemes. You know, when when they've collapsed and everything, there's still a little group of community people that go. Yeah, but we all know each other and we can just do this. Right, and right. so they carry on doing it without any bits of paper or anything being passed around. Right. Or because they have a community. Yes, exactly. So money is almost only needed when it's too big for you to actually see the whole loop. And yeah, the idea of, of mutual credit or of this thing, which is, if you like, one stage beyond mutual credit, which is let's just have everybody's sales invoice data. And mm. let's get a computer to, to do cancel. Oh, this cancels, this, this cancels, this, yeah. you know, see the loops in operation and then just tell everyone, OK, you know, the net effect on your accounts is zero. But now you're not waiting for someone to pay your bills and and you're not, not having, having to, to, get pay a bank loan to pay the yeah. next So it can reduce your, it can improve your cash flow because you're not no longer waiting for invoices to be settled forever. And it can then speed up how quickly you can pay the next person and reduce your reliance on on a bank overdraft
0: or, or a loan. And AI presumably makes this super fast.
1: Probably. I, I mean,
0: I, within the last, last six months, we could have increased the speed of those algorithms to the point where they're basically happening in real time.
1: We could do. I mean, I I, I don't think that's been... I think, um, I think it might be... I'd have to check. It's either Slovenian or Slovakian government that has actually been trying to do this Wow. At a kind of government level. I, I think it's Slovenian.
0: And the Americans haven't shut them down yet. Because the thing, I mean, this feels a bit like Virgil, which was, I think, in Austria, wasn't it? it yeah. At the time. And and it was shut down because the government was losing control of the way money was spent. Yeah. And the at the moment, still, the world's fiat currency is the dollar. And the Americans get, you know, will start wars if they think they're losing. There was there was quite a strong argument that they went for Libya because Gaddafi was just about to start selling oil in euros. hmm and I'm maybe Slovenia is so small that it's just not on their radar yet.
1: Maybe I I don't know. I mean, the people that would be most angry about it are the banks, right? They're the ones oh. that lose out when businesses self-organise with mutual credit, because the bank isn't going to have to give loans people overdrafts.
0: And charge the money. I mean, I think you know it's always worth saying that banks invent money out of nothing and then sell it to us for free. They're the only place in the world that gets to actually just make something out of thin air, and then charge money for it.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, it's uh, the fact that this is legal never ceases to amaze me. It, makes me.
1: <laughs> it, it is incredible, and and to give people an idea of that because they might not know, they, it's reckoned that something like ninety seven percent. Of the money in the UK economy is basically bank-created money out yeah. of thin air, and only yeah. about three percent is yeah. actual fiat currency.
0: Is it cash, the the pounds and and coins that we yeah. we all and value so much? And
1: yeah. that's the reason that the Bank of England is keen to develop a digital currency, a, a central bank digital currency. So they get one hundred percent instead of ninety-seven well, percent. So they well instead of three percent, so that they have control. Oh, I see. They have the three control instead right. of not having control. And as well, especially when they can see other governments doing this, and there's a real fear that you know Americans and Chinese get going much quicker on the central bank di- digital currencies than we do, then that becomes the main way that money is passing hands, and suddenly the, the UK, the Bank has, of
0: England just ceases to
1: exist. Well, it has no control over our money system but the it's, government would
0: still we're, okay we're now going very off piece listeners this is really are, yeah. interesting because i didn't know this but i think most people have heard it, the idea that central bank digital currencies cbdc is is the latest bugbear for both left and right that mm-hmm. people on both ends of the political spectrum are saying i do you know hang on to your cash hang on to your pound notes and your coins because at the point where there's a digital currency we're in handmaid's tale area somebody can just press a button and you have no money because they decided you have none and that's not you know if you could trust the people at the top that would be great but we don't and we can't and it's going to be a while before we can so and yet the bank of england as you're saying if they lose control of every part of the currency if if a version of goldman sachs is the only creator of money not great for the bank of england but but given that Governments spend money into existence and banks lend money into existence. The government is always going to be spending central bank money into existence, surely. It won't be spending America's central bank money into existence.
1: Exactly. But at least it will have some control then over how much money it's adding into the system. And it can decide, and I guess this is is the interesting thing about how might it impact on taxes and things like that, because generally speaking, Taxes can only be paid in the legal tender of that particular mm, mm. Uh, nation, and so that's that is the chief control mechanism for making sure it comes back to you. So that there will be something there, but I, I would say something else about the the central bank dis- digital currency thing because I, I was invited uh, along with Positive Money to go to go up to the Bank of England actually and have a kind of a session on it. You see, you talk to all the most interesting people there, <laughs> <laughs> and I actually think it could be fantastic infrastructure, if we consider that what we need to do is decouple, and and this might well be not obvious, so maybe we'll have to go back to this, but if we're trying to degrow and reduce our, our general footprint and make do with less so that we're not constantly buying more and more stuff, and that means actually less employment. Both the left and the right in the UK wants to grow the economy. We're told every day, oh, we're going to grow the economy by this. We're going to grow the economy by, yes. by Which by is this.
0: why they're all neoliberals. Yes.
1: And we don't want to grow the economy no. because... Okay,
0: so sane people don't want to, yes.
1: We, we can't grow the economy without increasing our footprint, our damaging footprint.
0: Without extracting more. The only way to grow the economy at some level is to extract exactly. from a, a system that is not going to bear much more extraction. So biophysical limits on our capacity to extract.
1: Exactly. And therefore, degrowth is the thing we need to be trying to get our head around. And the question okay. is, how do we degrow without hurting lots of people? Okay, And that is a very difficult problem. But one of the things has got to be, if I, all the time we're in a growth mentality, we're thinking, Right. Well, we need more jobs because jobs is how we get money to people and people can yeah. buy things. In other words, OK, Labour are saying we'll create more jobs and people should be better paid. And Conservatives are saying, you know, we're going to increase investment and make sure that people with lots of money can invest that in businesses and kickstart the economy. But no matter which bit of the cycle you're starting with, yeah. it's the same cycle.
0: They're both neoliberals. They're both wanting to grow.
1: They're both yes. about growth. And so, actually, one of the key things is how do we not focus everything on creating jobs, if you like.
0: Particularly jobs that people hate doing. You know, this whole exactly. bullshit jobs of thing is, is you know, you were not born just to pay bills and die, but we live in a system where that's what you're for. And,
1: and the bullshit jobs are not just bullshit because they're meaningless for people and cause us all to be unhappy uh, because we're just commoditized labour and the only reason we're doing mm. it. We're, we're We're waged slaves who are obliged to do this work in order to be able to Do stuff in the market economy, like buy the food we need, buy the accommodation we need, buy the blood. You know, we're we're forced into it because we're in a market economy. So when I when I often think about how do I reduce my impact, the main answer is I need to earn less and I need to spend less. I need to do my own personal degrowth. And if we want to encourage everybody in the country to do that and to say, I'm only going to do work which I think has value, rather than a bullshit job well, then we need a universal basic income. So I think, actually, that if we could get the CBDCs set up correctly, they could be an amazing infrastructure where you could do universal basic incomes really easily without all the bureaucracy that goes on, you know, with so many different health and
0: So tell us how this is, I mean, we're getting off the digital, but this is actually because degrowth is what we need to do. Mm. So how does a central bank digital currency help us have a universal basic income? Tell us, can you just explain the logistics of that?
1: Because if everybody, if every citizen, and this is, these are big ifs, right? This is why I'm saying it's down to the implementation. But in an ideal world, let's design the best. In an ideal world, if this is implemented well, then it means that every citizen from as soon as they're born has, much like they might have an NHS number, has a a central bank digital currency accounts number and it is then very easy to distribute money to all of those accounts and you're not going to miss anyone out because that they, they all exist whereas all of the other current systems require okay well if you're you know if we know about you here and there and you can prove this that and the other about yourself then you know then we can maybe you can claim and you can fill in this and maybe we'll give you some money and maybe we don't you know But there's been nothing truly universal. There's been universal basic income experiments all over the place. Yes, but they've always been localized. But they've been very, you know, well, we'll give this sort of people in this locality this amount of money. And it's never enough to actually mean you don't need to get a job. Um, And therefore, the, the impacts have been very little. There's a fantastic book. Ghost in the Machine, or Ghost Ghost of My Life, I think it's called. I think it's by someone called Mark Fisher. I might need to look this up afterwards. We'll have to check this for your show notes after. And he's written a book, and he does a really great thought experiment, which kind of shows how stagnant our culture has been, specifically since cutting things like unemployment wages and student grants and all the rest of it he maintains that if you look up until the point where all of those benefits and free money, if you like, got, got cut to almost nothing, there was a lot of artistic creativity, a lot of, you know, people, people had time to do the stuff they wanted to do instead of just have to, you know, because now even if you're if you're doing a degree, you're going to have to have a part-time um, or a full-time um, job on the side yeah. just to, to, to cope, right? Yes. Um, and as a result... There's no time for for creativity, for for um, and and you can't take a sabbatical off work for a few years and and focus on arts or crafts or something, um, do deep thought uh, because you know you've just got to keep working the whole time. So you've got
0: to keep on the hamster wheel.
1: Exactly. So yeah, this this is the book I was talking about, and he 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 starts off um, "Ghosts of My Life" by Mark Fisher for people who are not watching. See the guy who did uh, Molotov
0: cocktails with Gandhi? Do might you know have no idea. Okay, go on. Tell us about it. I'll look it up. Yep.
1: But he he dis- has this thought experiment where he says, if you imagine taking someone from the 1980s back to the 1940s, it would create huge culture shocks. Like, what are these guys wearing? What is this stuff they call music? You know, what are these <laughs> hairstyles? It would just be like the biggest culture shock. And and similarly from the 1940s you know, back 40 years before then, to so the 1900s, huge culture shock. If you took someone from the 2020s back to 1980, just no one would even notice that this person was from the future. Hmm. The clothes would look basically normal. The hairstyles would look more. The music they're listening to. A bit freaked out
0: by the technological differences, don't you think?
1: Uh, uh, tech, yes. But actually, in terms of the... the, Yeah, tech is a different thing, isn't it? Um, I'm talking about... The culture, the creativity, the you know how we how we're thinking, how we're how we're showing up in the world in terms of our you know the things that we're creating, music, art, you know how how we look, the things we're it's like nothing, very little has really been developed new. It's it's all become rather derivative. And do you think
0: does he saying this is because we're all in the hamster wheels and we haven't yes. got the the space and the head time to do things differently? Yes, right.
1: because the what was almost it wasn't a universal basic income but there was a cushion of social money that could give people time and space to be creative and do things and actually it's through creativity that we generally make the biggest strides and i also think to myself perhaps it's no surprise that you know cuz in the 1970s people realized the meta crisis was was happening right you know a lot of people mm getting very excited about that. And we had the whole kind of, we had the explosions of, um, you know, health food shops and, you know, buying your dried foods and taking your own bags. It was huge. Yeah,
0: The Good Life was on television. It was the thing. Exactly,
1: exactly. And then it feels like people keep saying, oh, you know, it's growing so much. This movement is growing so much. And I'm looking down the high street and going, no, there's still, if I'm lucky in every neighborhood, a zero waste type health food shop. But in yeah, still not Not exactly, and not in Kingswood, actually, where I live in
0: Bristol. Uh, There's a Holland and Barrett, which is not what you would call exactly. Exactly,
1: it's like this has not happened. It's still really niche. There is still very few people filling up their washing up liquid bottles from from a. Do you mean it's like it? It's not taken off at all. And and I think the people who are in who are doing it and whose friends are all doing it always think, yeah, now we got it. This is a know, But we've been thinking that since the 1970s. Actually nothing has changed and i'm and and i think to myself is that partly because people have been forced onto the hamster wheel there's no space to think outside it there's no space to go i could just drop two days a week of my job mm. start mending my own clothes and
0: do what makes my heart sing
1: yes. yes exactly cook more with lentils and slow food and stuff and yeah mend things and not not have to keep go by you know, like, to to what if i really thought about it how much better because it is better right we we will actually
0: how we evolved to be it's what we are born expecting is the capacity to to be creative and to connect with people not to be thrown onto a hamster wheel but the thing about the 70s was it wasn't accidental was it the the whole hayek chicago school neoliberal movement was because they looked at what was happening and didn't like it Mm. so i have a question sorry you were about to say something but but add into my question whatever you were about to say UBI is great. It's a really interesting idea. I feel we had this conversation endlessly at college. So UBI without rent controls, in its broadest sense, is a very fast way of pumping public money into private hands. Because you can give everybody their central bank digital currency, you can have a thousand, whatever we like to call them, lovely coins. And by tomorrow, you're actual rent, the cost of your electricity, your water, will have taken 999 of them away. And and the people who will benefit are the people who are now on their third yacht.
1: I completely agree.
0: What else we could have is a is universal basic services, which would involve the money that the government having, whatever is the created money, and flowing it into services that hopefully don't have too many leaky buckets.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is the Bank of England interested in equity, or are they interested in controlling the velocity of value?
1: Yeah. I mean, the Bank of England, frankly, aren't remotely interested in, in ideas like universal basic income at this point, I don't think, and that's not at all what okay. in their thinking. And you're right. Universal basic income by itself is not a solution. It is just going to make everything worse it would have to come in with a load of other stuff as well. And it would need to be done gradually where we are gradually giving more money that way and gradually making sure that actually, you know, for example, tax rates, tax loopholes and stuff. But the, so the stuff that is actually commercial needs a lot more control. And and I, I think this is kind of maybe much later on where I where I get to by the end of my book where I'm thinking... Okay, let maybe let's maybe let's do this now quickly.
0: Can we do it quickly?
1: <laughs> well, then.
0: because it, I think the where do we get to is actually quite detailed. I I think let's briefly, very briefly just go go back into the Bristol Pound because it is still an interesting project because I think the where can we get to and what can we do is actually huge and we have not a huge amount of time left. So let's just give give us the Bristol Pound briefly and then let's have a look at what we can do. Okay.
1: So the Bristol Pound briefly was on the one hand, this local money going from local people to local businesses, local businesses onto other local businesses doing that, both retaining wealth in the local community and reducing the distance between production and consumption. That was one bit. And the other bit, which never got off the ground, was going to be the money creation through mutual credit to enable that velocity and take away some of the power from the banks to control the velocity of that money. That bit never got off the ground. So, but the, the localization currency did. I think that there's no point in going into the, the huge things of you know how complex it was and how all the nuts and bolts worked. people can read the book because Make it is really book. exciting, actually, in a way. But what I would say is maybe it's worth looking at why did it end? And the why did it end? Basically, if it had been able to grow to about a hundred times the size in terms of amount of money. You know, the velocity going through the system and probably the number of users as well. If we had been at a hundred times where we were, the little charges on transactions that that um, that were made up for the digital money, much as in the normal world, merchants pay transaction charges each time you pay with your card right. or phone. This is
0: how Visa and Mastercard make
1: their billions. Yeah, right. So we could have. It could have been self. it It could have been self-maintaining it could have been viable as a currency in its own right but we could never get up to that level of usage why couldn't we and that's really a marketing problem and here's the problem we the way we marketed it was we said exactly what we were trying to do like hey we're trying to localize the economy we're we're trying to you know basically be good people yeah and it's a very sort of ideological thing that you have to get your head around and then agree with it and then believe it would work. And if you can do all of those three things, then fine you'll join the Bristol pound and maybe you'll even use it occasionally. Right. But but all the time that you're saying, come on, you mustn't go to stop going to Tesco's. Tesco's really bad. You know, you must you must do this other thing. Right. And you know, you've got to go to the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, and you've got to, you know. If that means it takes twice as long to shop, well, that's a good thing to do because this is important. And if that means your shopping is going to cost twice as much money, you know, because you're buying an ancient grains, organic sourdough bloomer instead of sliced white from from Tesco. And it's
0: much healthier for you and it's not going to give you diabetes.
1: Yeah. So that's the reason we couldn't get up. We, We created a barrier. We said, in effect, if you're this woke and you get all of this new economy thinking, then you can join us. And and otherwise, you know, there's nothing to see here. You know, people would say, oh, so do I get a discount card? And I go, no, there's no discount card because we're trying to help little tiny businesses that can't afford to give you discounts. So right. you do this because you want to make the world a better place and you believe in it.
0: Like, and the fact that your business might go bankrupt in the process is irrelevant to us because we're all good people. Well,
1: and the fact that you're you know, mother of four living in a in a council estate trying really hard to just mm. cope. You know, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe you've got enough headspace to to worry a little bit about um, you know, your environmental impact. You've got no headspace to think about your economic impact. This is ridiculous, you know.
0: Right. And you don't have the time and you don't have the money. Yeah. This this is the environmental, this is our whole meta crisis. Focused into one thing, isn't it? This is yeah. this is why neoliberalism is pushing us over the edge. Yeah, because people don't have the headspace, and those of yeah. us who want things to change are going. You know, you just do have to spend more money. And the fact that local food is going to cost more is just very sad, but that's the way the world is. Yeah. Okay, and so, what do we do, Diana?
1: So, and so, what we did was we we closed it down. We started to think, what could we do next? So that the last bit of my book is kind of thinking about all the ideas of given that Bristol Pound wasn't working, what could we do next? And my starting point was, okay, we mustn't have that ideological barrier. We must make something which just makes sense to people in the current paradigm without having to do any mental gymnastics and try and think very differently about everything and try and behave very differently. So we came up with the idea of a very different sort of money product, which would basically be a payment system where it it was using newer technology. So it was much easier to make the maths work in terms of how this would be. So what kind of,
0: are we talking blockchain or
1: cards? No, we're talking Electronic Money Institute regulations, which is a a bit of a mouthful, probably not worth going into that here. But it it basically works a bit like PayPal used to uh, in the old days. And PayPal predates Electronic Money Institute regulations. But if you remember how it worked originally when it was still very basic, you uploaded some money to PayPal you could then pay other people with a PayPal account. And if you had some spare money, you could download it into your account. All of those transactions that happened from a PayPal account to a PayPal account to a PayPal account, those didn't touch the rest of the system. It was only PayPal. For PayPal, it was very, very cheap to operate. It's like, debit this person, credit this person. No third parties, no kind of, you know, Square and, you know, Google Pay and, you know, banks, doing a load of transfers in the background that need to be paid for. No, they own the whole thing and they encourage everyone to have an account on their thing. So we were thinking same thing, right? We have everyone have an account on Bristol Pay. We were thinking actually it would be City and We would have lots of implementations of it all over the place. And running that then, you know, running the transactions is very cheap. We still could charge a transaction fee as PayPal do.
0: Which is why Peter Thiel owns half the South Island of New Zealand.
1: Exactly, exactly. So so the business case works, right? So what we needed is why would you use this platform? And we decided it would be the only nonprofit payment platform where any surpluses would be used to fund local voluntary sector services.
0: Local to your area, whatever your area is.
1: Local to your area, wherever your implementation is. So if we're doing Bristol pay, then it will be Bristol voluntary sector. It could even be hyper-local. You know, it could be Mm. you're in Fishponds, Fishponds Youth Club, you know, whatever. So that was the kind of idea. And we we did some market testing. We said to businesses, you know, if you could accept another method of payment with similar costs to your current method of payment, but it would be raising funds, the local voluntary sector, would you be up for that? And they, we got 100% yes, even from big businesses. In fact, perhaps especially from bigger businesses because they find it harder to give that local we care about your locality message. I mean, they sometimes have little green bits of plastic, which you, yeah, but it's not really very much. And then they give a 200 pound grant.
0: We're basically siphoning all the value out of your location. And then we're going to give you a very, very tiny fraction to the local dog and
1: cat home. Exactly, exactly that. So we all ask people, you know, would you use this? And they said, yes, of course, because I want my youth club to survive. And I'm well aware that they're not getting grants anymore from the local council because that local council is just, you know, having to squish everything out.
0: Does this not end up being an argument for government not funding anything, though? Does this not just end up undercutting or, or giving the government an excuse to stop funding? Though They're going to do that
1: anyway. So there's a difference between this is how we sell this and we tell a story that people understand okay. and get them to use this platform, whether or not it's a good thing. You know, should charities exist? You know, uh, it's a whole other discussion. It's okay, a whole yes, other discussion that right. charities should not need to exist. But anyway, let's let's just... <laughs>
0: but they do. This is the real world. And this would be... I mean, who wouldn't want to use something that worked as well as PayPal but wasn't actually helping Peter Thiel to buy his fifth giant yard? Yes. Exactly.
1: And so that, that was the idea. We have our kind of localised PayPal-type solution that generates money for local voluntary sectors. The, the local council, very happy about this idea as well because you know would
0: they have taken rates in
1: this um n- no but it was more about they were interested in it because they could see that this potentially um is a way to add money into the voluntary sector which they're not able to do okay and you know they're, they're constantly having to outsource things to, to to charities at the moment because they just can't do it all so we thought right we've got something which talks to everybody within the current paradigm once they're doing that okay yes we're also raising some money for some local charities, which is a great thing but actually. It wasn't the purpose of what we were trying to do. That was Mm. the way of making a business model that gets people on board. The purpose was to get people to understand value and their impact in a very different way. And the way we wanted to do that was to sort of have a game thing on the side. And the games would have tokens. The tokens wouldn't buy you anything. The tokens would be like your Fitbit steps or your Duolingo lingots or monopoly money right they don't actually buy you anything but they they kind of yeah they're points in a game they make you feel-, you feel good
0: it's gamification yeah
1: yeah they make you feel good they dopamine you-
0: hits basically they're gonna give you dopamine
1: and so we we started to think about what are all things that we could do that we could count that would like be like wow we're creating a different world and we had so many there were so many ideas right so for example uh, one of the ones was a shorter shower challenge where you sign up to the shorter shower challenge every day you say did I manage to do my shower in three minutes or less and every day that you did you know it's like oh, hooray and maybe you've got um, it, or your profile picture is driven by the tokens you've got so maybe right. you know if you're saving water nice. you've got a lovely lake with ducks on it and things and that actually the lake dries up and stuff if you've been using too much water in your shower and the ducks are looking unhappy kind of thing. Right. So it's not just you
0: gets to see it. Your neighbours and your friends and your community gets to see visually.
1: If you share it.
0: You don't have to. But
1: I was quite big on data privacy.
0: We're not shaming people.
1: No, definitely not. So it would be as much as with Duolingo, for example, where if anyone who plays that. About where, which
0: I know nothing. Well,
1: it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you basically can choose like, oh, let's be friends, let's be friends. And okay. then you can see how each other is doing and high five each other and stuff. So more like that than like social media, if you like. But right. the data would be held on a blockchain. And so at an anonymized level, we could create stats like, in Bristol, 3,200 people have been doing the shorter shower challenge in the last month, and we think we've saved this many gallons of water and this much gas eating it up to shower temperature. We could have other things. So uh, I can't go through them all. Go on, go. I you know this is really exciting. So go. So rewilding a bit of your garden. I don't know if you've looked around at gardens and you know they're, they're either like Plastic lawns, or they're real lawns, but real lawns are barely better than plastic. Oh, or they sprayed glyphosate all over them. Yeah, exactly. All yes. uh, their, you know, decking areas or or you know, paved over. Um, the cars parked on it. And we were thinking, right, for every square meter that you rewild, you, you get a token, and then we start to go, oh my god, extra, extra points for hedgehog tunnels and yes, right, exactly. So because we need ponds. to change the norms, right? This is all about changing the norms and making people think oh that's a cool thing and we're not saying you must do this it just instead is a fun thing where people get to be part of it and get to go hey look what we're doing and instead of thinking oh what, you know like one of the ideas was car free days right so each time you manage not to use your cars like you get a point kind of thing but you're feeling instead of like it makes no difference you know if I jump in the car to Take the kids to school today. I'm running out late and it's bloody raining. You know, let's just jump in the car. Yeah. Nobody's watching. Instead, it's like oh, I'd be letting down the team. You know, yeah. um, I, I want to post my tokens. I want to post my results. I want to, and, and I want to be part of that positive movement, that collaborative mm. effort yeah. where we're a group of people who are trying not to use our cars. And that's a great thing. I, I thought about the other things that could be really huge, like skills that you know mending clothes spinning weaving knitting oh another big one was you know the extinction rebellion do the do the de-escalation training and i thought oh my god imagine if you could run de-escalation training and and you get a a token for doing that and you got it popular and you got 20 percent of bristol's population having done de-escalation training can you imagine what that would do to um police call outs and accidents and emergency and but just the general feeling of how safe you feel in the pub, right? Yeah. Um, it, it would just be huge. It would be transformational. And, and so we were just thinking about all of these to try and make people understand or have a vision or feel that collaboration. And it would be the total opposite of how it is when people try and do it on Facebook or Twitter, because yes. you know, on Twitter, if I put up my hand and say, Hey, you know, I've done de-escalation training and I'm trying to be, it's like, whoa. Yeah. You can the natural
0: army will come yeah. for your blood. Uh,
1: yeah. And equally, if I try to say, I'm trying to be green. I'm having shorter showers. And they all go, yeah, but I saw you eat a hamburger. I saw you go get on the aeroplane. It's like, we have to get out. Of this. Just
0: beyond toxic.
1: Exactly. So instead of having both apathy and a kind of negative, you know, shaming culture, what we need yeah. is a positive, positive reinforcement. Yeah. Yes. And collaboration and a feeling of I'm, I'm doing something.
0: So this was reminding me a
1: lot of Hullcoin, which
0: I tried to get hold of them to talk on the podcast, and it had dissolved before I ever got there. And and for those listening, Hullcoin seemed to me a really interesting idea, where they were creating a local currency that was not linked to the fiat currency. It was valued at whatever the person giving it out said it was valued at, and it was going to be for. Social goods. So, uh, particularly if someone had, for instance, given up smoking and they'd gone along to the local clinic to help them give up smoking, and people said, okay, you've given up smoking for a day, you get a whole coin. Or you helped in the local library for a morning, you get a whole coin. But then you could spend it. For instance, one of the examples they gave was that football tickets cost whatever a football ticket costs. I have no idea. But five minutes after the game starts, they're not worth anything at all. But we've got 30 spare seats here. So now we're charging them out at a quarter of a whole coin each, and you can come in. Or the swimming lanes are part empty at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning because nobody wants them. So 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, quarter of a whole coin, you can come along and swim. And because they were not fixed to the fiat currency, they, as I gather, the Tory government of the time, this was 2015, had agreed that they weren't taxable. And so the
1: potential seemed to me huge. And then it dissolved well, he's he is Peter Kemp is the guy behind this, and he's okay. not gone away. He's been doing stuff in the Netherlands, and then more recently he's been doing it in Bradford. And Bradford have got I think it's called Citizen Coin, and it's not dissimilar. Oh, I want them on the podcast. And I yeah, you know, I chat with Peter, and I have a lot of time for him. My experiment, well, the experiment that I didn't get off the ground, but that I wanted to do is different in two, well, in in one key way, really, I guess, which <laughs> is that. His tokens are still basically, they're trying to incentivize you to then use that within the mainstream economy. And it was, okay, it could also be, yeah, thing, yeah as you say, it's, it's about businesses and providers using spare capacity or, you know, the cream cakes are going to go off. we have got to throw them out, you know, at five o'clock. If you've got hull coins, you can come along and have this many creaking. And. The reason that it wasn't a tax problem is because it's basically a, it's a discount. The businesses couldn't spend those Hull Coins on. They are burnt, if you like, the moment that they are spent. Right. So the business can't spend them on. All they've done is given a discount. So there
0: is no velocity of Hull Coin.
1: Well, there's no... Ve-
0: it's a voucher.
1: Yeah, it, it, exactly. It, it, there's no velocity because it's not passing on. Yeah. Um, it is perhaps helping businesses from a marketing perspective to to get more footfall. And so the, there were two reasons I didn't want to do it. One, I didn't want to be encouraging anything that was within the market economy. I wanted the market economy and the tokens to be completely separate, not right. to have this weird overlap in the middle. Okay. And the the reason for that is the work that I had read by Dan Arielli and James Heyman. So social they, they've done experiments into the social economy and They set up an experiment, which is very interesting. They had three cohorts of people and each set of people had to do the same pointless task on a computer for, I don't know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something. And one cohort got told, this is really important, uh, really important experiment. Sadly, there's no funding for it. We can't give you anything for your time. But, you know, this is so important.
0: Really vital.
1: Yeah. Another cohort got told, "This is really important work, and yeah, it's been well funded actually. And we can fund you at the minimum wage actually for the time that you're doing this. I'm afraid it's only the minimum wage, but it's you know it's a proper market rate for your hours and however long it was, wherever it was happening, that was five dollars." And the third cohort got told, "It's very, really important. We haven't got really any money, but we will just give you fifty cents just as a little nominal thank you for your time." And then they looked at how hard they worked and the ones that were paid nothing and the ones that were paid a market rate worked basically equally hard the ones that were paid 50 cents barely lifted a finger and there's there's something right. that clicks in to us as soon as we frame something in market terms and we think it's not worth my it's not worth it it's not worth right. my time then we don't really bother and i think this is the case with a lot of nudge economics which haven't worked some some have worked a bit for a short amount of time but many of them nudge economics things that have been tried haven't really worked long term and the reason is that you're not really paying someone for the amount of time they're having to put into I don't know sort out their recycling or put up with having a a shittier car that you don't like as much um you know or or whatever you know whatever it is it's like the the quid pro quo doesn't feel like it's a fair. It isn't isn't
0: a value. It isn't a shared value. So
1: anyway, they repeated the experiment with nothing, a box of chocolates worth $5 and a Snickers bar. And when they repeated it this second time, they didn't tell them how much those gifts were works. They framed it for all three cohorts as, this is really important. Either we can give you nothing or we can give you this little thank you. Um, you know, here's a Snickers bar to say thank you for doing it, or here's a box of chocolates to say thank you for doing it. And they all worked the same hardness. The ones that had a Snickers bar worked just as hard as the others.
0: Because ah, it didn't have a unitary value on
1: it. Yes. And then they did it a third time and they told them how much the Snickers bar was worth and told them how much the box of chocolates was worth. And as soon as they introduced that kind of like, well, we're giving you this and it's worth 50 cents immediately the market mentality was triggered. And so, yeah, I didn't want to risk associating these values about not using your car, rewilding your garden, having shorter showers. Let's
0: not monetize them. Yes, Let's not monetize it. Let's not
1: make the reason you're doing it, oh, because then I can get a discount down at my favorite coffee shop.
0: Yes, no, you're right. No, that makes so much sense. Okay, I have one other fundamental question, which is, We all know that BP did not produce the personal carbon footprint calculator for any good reasons. They did it to get people who cared to obsess about their personal footprint when the huge majority of our impact on the planet is collective. It's what you said right at the beginning. It's the systemic stuff. It's the amount of extraction that goes into a health industry or goes into material extraction of any sort. Each of us could cut our own Personal footprints to zero. And unless there is systemic change, actually, it won't make any difference. But what I'm thinking is that using this system gets people thinking differently. Its aim or its impact is not so much the I didn't use the car to work or I rewilded my lawn. Good though, rewilding your lawn is. It's that I began to see that there was a way to take seriously the issues that I know need to be taken seriously. And I saw collectively my entire street rewild and I realised we could do this together. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, that I mean, in my wildest dreams, that was at least part of it. There's okay. another bit of it, because as well as this being a game, if you like, and the tokens being points, and by the way, those points could devalue over time, so they would gradually erode.
0: demarrage of points,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. So that then if you want to have, you know, because maybe you know, having a hundred there was thanks tokens as well. But anyway, that, that you know maybe having a hundred thanks tokens. Oh, and there was voting tokens. We didn't go into that. But anyway. <gasps> quadratic voting. That kind of thing. Yes. And consensus voting. Was it, yes. it was spread voting, maybe not quadratic, but anyway, similar ideas. So there were all these ideas in there. So part of it is about, and this is why the book is called Value Beyond Money and why I called you out earlier on. Yes.
0: For linking value and money. Yes.
1: Yes. Because actually. Money is part of that made-up thing that I was talking about right at the beginning. Yes. It's not real. It's an idea. Real money, you know, money does not have real value. There's that lovely Alanis of Bob's, I can never say her name, quote, that when we have fished the last fish and cut down the last tree, you know, then we will... Discover that you can't eat money. Suddenly realise, oh, we can't eat money. Yes. So money actually isn't a value. It tries to... One of the problems with money... It's been designed to enable exchange. And I think a lot of people think exchange and trade is fine. We just need different money to do it. I see the problem as deeper than that. I think the problem is the market. So I'm really pleased a lot of people are doing some work on how do we make this big dreadful globalized market system, a bit less bad by having a slightly different sort of money and trying to reduce the negative impacts. That's all great. But actually I'm more interested in actually the whole idea of market and money and that being the basic governance system for planet Earth is problematic Mm. and we need a different Mm. governance system. And my big influences here have been, I guess, twofold. One has been Mark Brock, who has developed ideas around current C's and the way he writes that is current hyphen C. S-E-A. No, uh, S-E-E, seeing. Oh, okay. Seeing currents, seeing flows of value. And so he's saying, you know, there are lots of things that we could think of as values and it would be great to be able to see where they're being created, where they're, you know, how, what they're enabling the work, if you like, that that is being done and where value is being destroyed, actually. And to to make that visible and accountable in some way, you know, give people accountability, responsibility for these kinds of currencies. Hmm. We were thinking that our tokens would be on a blockchain, but actually Art Brock has set up his own kind of thing with with a load of other people called Holochain, which is a interestingly different. Don't ask me to explain it technically because I can't possibly but a, a similar sort of trustless distributed ledger, if you like, for specifically for thinking about interactions and currencies and how we could make this stuff visible.
0: I so need to talk to this guy. So yeah, okay, no, you but do we're talking to. to you and you've talked to him. So go, on, keep going.
1: Well, yeah, but he will say it better than me. So yes, maybe maybe I've paved the way for you to speak to Art Brock, which would be great. And, and I started to think about things like, you imagine so apparently there is software that if you look at images of the earth from from space pixel by pixel there are algorithms that can go well this is virgin forest and this is you know farmland this is plantation forest this is built environment large, large land model yeah there's a guy right. in portugal doing it yeah right and i'm imagining if you got that and you mapped it to land ownership boundaries national boundaries and then you would go well virgin forest is worth 10 points and and or tokens and you could say you could you could do year on year and this could be a kind of un level if you like you know like global accounts for the uk is destroying the value of their land at a rate of x percent per year it starts to make these things much more to, to become aware of mm. where the value is and where it's being destroyed because we're not really aware of that at the mm. moment uh and it certainly has no impact but you know if if there were like you should be matching your environmental land score and your social you know how many people are dying below you know below the age of whatever or how mm. many people mm. are have diabetes yeah. and yeah. you know we could start to have a load of different social health social cohesion all kinds of different yeah. Currencies and another key area where I think we need currencies in the in the Art Brock sense is for manufactured items. At the moment, our current system, what makes it worth money, worth Mm. have value, is its creation and initial sale, and then it's just nothing, which is why we don't care about it. Why the circular economy stuff really struggles to get going because it has no no value. Whereas actually. The value, it's ongoing life. it
0: has been designed to have value, if it isn't an an item of clothing that's been designed to fall apart.
1: It's designed to do something. It's like the velocity of the money thing. It's gotta be doing something. Did you know this stat about the average power drill? It is- It
0: gets used for 18 minutes in its entire life.
1: I heard four minutes and then it's in a landfill site. Because we use it, we put up one set of shells and then we put it in the attic and then we either forget it's there-
0: And then we buy another one.
1: We buy another one because now there's one with hammer action and it's cord free. Or or maybe we get it out and because it's not being used, it's just seized up. And so we have to chuck it out. You know. But whatever, whatever the reason, whereas actually it should be yeah. being used. And it's yeah. probably only got 18 minutes of life in it. That may, be, that may be another stat that most drills can only work with 18. I
0: think it isn't because Stroud and the places have, that have their tool library. Yeah. And they they really do really well yeah, yeah, because yeah. exactly that you know a hundred people could use this for eighteen minutes at a time and it would be absolutely fine.
1: Exactly. So so and they and they're doing repairs as well as part of that. You know, my my daughter works in one here in Kingswood, and so circular economy. So yeah, manufactured items need a currency as well. So there's all these currencies, and this is the Art Rock idea of how do we really track value, not money, track real value. And how does this break the market? Real values are not fungible. So I can state the value of my house in US dollars or in eggs if I wanted to, because there is a fungible thing through which I can say, well, an egg is worth roughly this much. So, you know, but I cannot state a value of X years of peace hmm. for this much good soil, or
0: yeah.
1: did you mean or this this yes. much carbon dioxide being taken out of the atmosphere with this much social cohesion or with with you know children under five not not suffering early mortality over that, you know, it's like they're not not fungible. The idea that value is fungible is completely wrong. And yet we have based our entire system on a market mentality that says there's one thing of value, it's called money, it's completely fungible, and the way we pass it around is through market transactions. And so this is the other problem with a market. There's always a markup. Right, otherwise it doesn't work.
0: It's not a market exactly. Yeah. Someone has to make a profit, and therefore somebody else has to make a loss, which is usually the plan. And,
1: and so, money—you, know, we give money out to people through through wages, and then we we extract it back. And, and the, the general process for money is to go from the poorest people to the richest people, and we've seen that happening. Right, you know that, that is—it's so obvious that it that that is how money works. And governments keep saying that, oh, yes, we're trickle down, blah, blah, blah. It's just not true. It's a complete lie. It's a complete lie.
0: And I think most people are seeing the lie now, except the real ideologues. Yeah. Then, yes. If we break the market in the way that you're suggesting, by accepting that actual value is not fungible, the people who are currently doing very well out of the market, because this is what Nate Hagen calls the super organism. Mm. It is what powers the planet. It is what keeps everybody else moving. Yeah. Can you see a way to the soft landing, to uh, taking the market apart in a way these people are not going to then end up with 16 yachts and all, all of the stuff that they have, but they're still going to do quite well, but in a way that doesn't, doesn't cause global war?
1: It's very tricky and I would be lying to if I said, Oh, yes, I know how it could work. I, I really don't. However, what I can at least do is say, We've got a rubbish system. What we need to be doing is designing the system that we can move over to and let's try and develop it. And what does that look like? And I guess that's really where I'm trying to focus. And I'm thinking the world is one thing that we all have to share. It is a commons.
0: It is the commons.
1: It is the global commons. And working from Eleanor Ostrom's principles, we therefore need to govern it as a commons, not as, you know, like if we really believe the earth is a commons and that people all have equal value and that we have a duty not only to this generation, the next seven seven generations, but, you know, we're trying to... So
0: the whole biosphere. Yeah,
1: exactly. We're trying to actually steward the planet for ourselves and for the future. You know, if that's really what this is about, we would not invent as the governance system no. a market economy. What would we invent? We'd invent a kind of commons governance system. And so let's get busy trying to decide that. What will it need? Well, it won't need money because, as I've said, money is at complete odds with, with what value is all about. But we will need currencies to see where value is being created and how it's being shared or how how it's being destroyed we will need organizations of some type because for things like a health service or to build a computer you do need coordinated things and you do need you know supplies from different parts of the world but those organizations don't need to be corporations the key thing about a corporation is it is apart from non-profit organizations but basically a corporation is there to make money for the shareholders whatever its stated activity is it's no, not its purpose.
0: Or the venture capitalists who funded it. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we need organizations, but we need organizations that are purpose driven and that
0: are future guardian model
1: coordinating people to do things, but not on the basis of money. And we also need to completely change our concept of land ownership. You know, at the moment, I can buy a bit of land anywhere. I can dig up um you know lithium and create havoc. And uh, it's fine. I've bought the land. I don't have to think about mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can pour glyphosate all over it, nitrogen and phosphate and yeah. produce food that is killing people and yeah, claim it that it's a good thing. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's no, all absolutely.
1: fine. It's mine. I can do what the hell I like with it. And externalities, the, you know, the pollution, the whatever. Well, I just expect the rest of the world to pick that up for me. It's just so we have to just so those are the three things. We need currencies. We need to get rid of the idea of private ownership. Not just of land, of ideas as well. I mean, you know, that intellectual property is one of the worst things. It's like, whoever had an idea actually without having been, you know, they absorbed. Without being
0: part of a culture. Yes. yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: And so that's what I want us to try and be, you know, that's what I'd like to be involved in doing next. You know, my, I hope my next job is helping people design and experiment how we do a conversation because eleanor's eleanor ostrom's work you know like you know everyone needs to have a stake in it they need to you know work out what the rules are between them and uh, and then we need to be able to call out bad behavior and sanction that right that's that's kind of yeah. what she said in short <laughs> um and that can work fine without any kind of tech or visibility if you like when it's 150 people in a community managing a bit of land Exactly.
0: But at global scale, it can become a global state quite quickly, which has implications we might not want.
1: We need visibility because, you know, when it's 150 people, I can say, John, I saw you do that. And now is the consequence.
0: Even so, politics being politics, and we all still have our paleolithic brains. I was talking to someone today about a completely separate thing, but she said the organisation, people don't leave until they die. And the people who are oldest have the most authority and the rest of us cannot argue. So you still need to create systems of emotional literacy and and democracy, even if it's just a room full of 20 people.
1: Exactly. So so how are we going to do this? Can we avoid a hard landing? Probably not. One of the most interesting conferences I ever went to was in Hull, actually. And we had two days or three days, I forget what it was, of trying to decide, you know, what is the new economy that that comes next? Right. It was great. And about halfway through day two, I kind of put up my hand and said, you know, these are amazing ideas, and it's all fabulous. But yeah, you know, how are we going to get there? We we haven't talked about
0: what's the throughtopia. What's the throughline? Exactly. Yeah.
1: And she just said, "Oh no, we all know the current system is just going to collapse. This is about how do we create some kind of legacy or model that the poor bastards who live through it uh, and come out the other end, so they don't recreate the same rubbish." And I thought, you know, and I thought, well, oh, I'm usually the most depressing person in the room. <laughs> but, you know, here are some people who are truly, <laughs> truly, you know, it's like
0: truly, but they don't aren't necessarily right.
1: I, I hope not. And so I hope that the people who are doing the lovely work of trying to minimize the harms of the current global economy, that they will do stuff in time enough. And Meanwhile, we can grow this and we can gradually transition mm-hmm. some things across because lots of things have been were actually in a different system and they've come into the market in my lifetime. For example, child care and elder care and various other things. yeah, you know, I'm not mm. saying it was great. it was that women, women weren't paid or recognized for their work, but meanwhile, they socialized children really well and fed them really well. You know, we can see that we have undervalued child care within our current market economy by looking at rates of teenage mental health problems, rates of childhood obesity, and early onset diabetes Yeah, you know, we can see that we are not yeah. we are not actually valuing how we socialize our children and similarly how we look after our older people correctly instead we brought we we said to ourselves well we'll bring because we need women in the workplace to grow the big economy we'll do that we'll let them buy the things they need to you know mm. to look after children and because it all used to be free and we can't really you know there's this you know idea of Scarcity of money within a market system for some reason, so we'll have to pay them very little. And so we have, mm. you know, school leavers with very little training who are not personally invested in this little person, how they're going to grow up and develop.
0: Oh, this old person.
1: All this old person, yeah. And meanwhile, you know, as parents, you know, we're working flat out, so we have to get takeaway pizza or whatever it is and shovel all kinds of rubbish down our children's yeah. throats. It's just the system is broken. Anyway, so if we. If we brought things into the market economy, maybe we can extract some of them. And I would start with a lot of the health and social care stuff and just say, no, no, no. And this is where maybe the universal basic income comes in. Because we say, no, oh, it's not your job to do it. We're going to dismantle this. It's now part of a different system. But anyone within that system gets the universal basic income. And mm-hmm. but and so do others. But it means it becomes like a voluntary thing that you're enabled yeah. to do. And as soon as it's voluntary, as we know from the James Heyman and Dan Ariely then you're engaging it with it in a different way and you feel it has a value. And it's not about, I'm getting paid to do it. So you're separating the money. You're making it so it's not commoditized labor. It is me doing my heart's desire to look after Mm. children or older people. Mm. And I'm enabled to do it, thanks to the universal basic income. So we gradually extract things from a market mentality. And that's as far as I've got with my thinking, really.
0: But that's that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Yes, because... Where does your heart's greatest joy meet the world's greatest need? Is everybody's baseline, really? Is everybody wants agency and a sense of being and belonging? And that would give it. We're so far over time. Let me stop looking at the clock. I'm thinking, I was listening to Josh Davila and Primavera de Filippi the other day talking about the coordination, which is the opposite of the the whole kind of libertarian nation state stuff, network state stuff. It's a... Sense of how to create non geographical Eleanor Ostrom Commons style digital commonses and communities. And I'm wondering, partly because that's very alive for me, and partly because it seems to me that the old style nation states have to go. And yet, in the interim, I think of Scotland. I sat beside a woman at a college in Oxford. It was a dinner for something completely separate. And I ended up sitting next to an economist who you would really have got on well with. And she and her husband taught half the time in Oxford at one of the colleges and half the time they were in Glasgow working out a central bank digital currency for Scotland after it gained independence with the idea that you helicopter money to everybody. And the velocity of that draws money. And provided you take that as tax and you take the fiat currency of either the Europe or the remains of the UK as tax, then they are going to stay more or less at parity. And it seemed really exciting. And that seemed to me one of the few arguments for maintaining nation statehood at the moment, provided it was allowed. I imagine Scotland would be turned into Gaza quite quickly if they tried to do that. But that's a separate argument. That if one of the Scandinavian nations or Iceland or New Zealand or somewhere that has geographic boundaries was able to take on board, because this is... Everybody said when the crisis happens, the ideas that are around are taken up. But you have to have the ideas around, and that's what Hayek and the Chicago School had when everything fell apart in the 70s. was, oh, look, here, we've got this whole new idea that we can give to you intact, and it will make everything right. And so if you have ideas that enough people believe in, they'll get taken up. I struggled to see the existing governance hierarchy taking this up we're going to need new governance aren't we
1: it, it is i mean you're right we need that or the current systems will fail and this is why even though i hate the idea of a massive disaster one i think it is you know i feel like it's inevitable in a way and i feel like maybe it is part of the story but it's, it's part of what mm. enables what comes next but i'd still rather work towards maybe we can try a soft landing and we just mm. need to keep working on that very hard. Um, I mean, it, it, I have to think that because otherwise, You're mad. It's, well, it's very difficult to get up in the morning, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. But but at the same time, I try and hold that even on my dark days where I think, oh, my God, it is all going to go horribly wrong. At least I think if there's if there's anyone surviving at all after oh. it all goes horribly wrong, Maybe we can really think about what comes next. And so I think, you know, despite at the time when I went to that conference in Hull, just thinking, what? That's crazy. Yeah. I actually yeah. think yes. that part of the reason I want to do that work of designing that, that global governance system for Commons Earth, you know, it's because this is really important. If we do get through the current thing, we need it. We need it. Whether it's yes. a soft landing or a hard landing, we still need yes. it.
0: And somehow you need to be putting it into little time capsules periodically so that somebody can dig it up and find it a hundred years from now in case they need it.
1: Exactly. So they were they were thinking in Hull about how do we create, they were thinking about an oral tradition. How do we create stories wow. that we could feed into the kind of nursery rhyme, fairy tale kind of religious...
0: I am going to feed all this into the next book, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, if you want me to, to somehow give credit i will definitely give credit in the acknowledgments but um mm. yeah we need this is i mean this is why the whole utopian writing concept is if we could get every bit of fiction if all of the big writers started writing stuff with this embedded in it mm. it would be there overnight if every television producer could not get anyone to write Eastenders or the next chain bond without it having this in it mm. it would happen within a year it's exactly but they won't take it
1: no and uh,
0: at the moment but if they couldn't get anything else they would have to take it
1: (laughs) that's a really lovely thought and i I think that is the problem isn't it that that kind of mass entertainment that we are you know through film and cinema and it's conditioning it's propaganda
0: every bit of it is propaganda it's
1: both distraction and propaganda from you know the little placement of a coke bottle here to the normalization of here i am sitting by a pool drinking a cocktail you know it's like everything is just... And here I am jumping on an airplane you know, it's just built into the yes. plot of everything. And you can yeah. understand.
0: And I am the guy or the woman who's made it. And if you haven't, it's because you haven't just spun the hamster wheel quite fast enough, but you will get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we could have a whole nother podcast on. We could, but
1: let's not,
0: let's not. Let's not yet. We'll do it one day, though. Okay. This has been so exciting. So interesting. Is there anything... Uh, we could go on talking for hours. I completely get that. And we will definitely come back for a second go. Is there anything that you want to say to listeners that they could usefully do now to help to be part of making this a reality?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think just, okay, you haven't got a game to help you do it. Yeah. Try and have that mentality that. Actually, I could just shorten my shower. I could just, you know, just the little things that you can do every day, and ins- and it's so easy to have the attitude of like, well, why would I bother? It makes no difference. But there are yeah. so many ideas for those little things we could do, and and if we do it, we help make it more normal, so that someone else will do it. It's really provided
0: we tell people we're doing it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and te- uh, this is another little bit. Actually, the way to make change happen is it. It doesn't happen usually by some big social media influencer change happens in minorities so minority groups do something someone in that minority group you know has an idea does something and because the little people around them you know in that minority uh, go oh that's cool and they can you know, they they feel safe to try it out and then a few other people yeah. try it out and then there's a whole little minority that are doing this new thing
0: and then you hit a tipping point where it begins
1: to ripple and then as they are seen by other people you know it starts to spread that way so think about what little communities you've got where actually together you could be you could be game changer you can be the first game changer but you you're spreading this in a in an area not where you're going to get laughed at by every troll on on social media mm. but instead where you're going to just Share it with people where you feel safe doing it uh, and and I guess the things that I would be trying to do and the things that I try and do in my own life is how do I both work less not very good at that, but at least I try and I try and work for less money
0: <laughs> and hey, you enjoy doing spreadsheets so they don't feel like work right
1: uh, yeah so be less dependent on money maybe you know be less dependent yeah. on money reduce everything you can you know just just mm. really look at like did i need to buy that you know new mm. pair of whatever did i really need it yeah. like and and just try and every purchase that and then when you're working less then you've got more time and then you can spend more time cooking so then you can get that veg box that you've been meaning to get and and then you don't have to go to the supermarket and you know troll up. In the, it's like, it, so it's just little things, and and but the the key thing that I'm constantly thinking is I want to use less, I want to spend less money, I want to use less money, I want to earn less money and spend less money, and that's I think it, you know that's a good place to start maybe.
0: That's fantastic, right? Well, until the next time, we are so going to have another conversation because this is so exciting. And I want to know where you're going to take this. And maybe maybe we can make it happen somehow. There must be ways. Great.
1: That would be great. I, ha- I have a few ideas, but it's going to take a, a while, I think, to-, to work out exactly what to do, which is part of the reason to write the book and then think maybe after that.
0: And when is the book out? Tell us when the book is going to be out.
1: Uh, the book, well, I don't think it'll be actually you know at a bookshop near you until September. I think it will okay. physically exist from about May, but I think then there's some kind of promotion. Okay, post.
0: but maybe you could come back in September when it's going to hit the shelves and we'll remind people that it's going to hit the shelves and we'll see where we could take some of the ideas.
1: Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me. Well, thank you. This has
0: been really exciting.
1: It's been a real honour to be on your podcast because I listen to your podcast and just think, Wow, these are amazing people. Oh my goodness. And then when you said, well, you could be on it, like, I just, I can't believe it. Oh, well, there you go.
0: And you have such exciting ideas. This has been really, genuinely very exciting. So thank you very, very much. Brilliant. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Amanda.
0: Take care. And that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Diana for the depth and breadth of her understanding of what we could do for going to the conferences of people who think it's too late and still believing that it isn't, for having coherent concepts of how we go about dismantling the superorganism. We have to do this now, people, and each of us can play a part. And what Diana just said about starting the small communities, not just of place, though that matters, but also of purpose and passion. The places that you collect online are as important as the places where we collect in person now, I think. Start the balls rolling. Start holding these conversations. Start talking to people about the changes that we can all make, not just in our behaviour, that is really important, but in the behaviours all of us expect of the organism around us. If we stop expecting stuff to arrive from a six-continent, just-in-time supply chain, then we stop relying on them, then we can dismantle it. This is really important now, people. So I've put links in the show notes to the various things I forgot, like the confessions of an economic hitman, which I managed to completely forget the name. That is now in the show notes. And any connections otherwise that Dana and I feel are useful will be in there. And otherwise, we'll be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, Thanks to Kara C for the music at the Head and Foot, to Alan for some stellar production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tilleray for the website, the tech that keeps the gatherings going. My goodness, there is so much behind the scenes, people, and for the conversations that keep us moving forward. And as ever, enormous thanks to you for caring, for wanting to be part of the journey, for being there for taking whatever steps you can take. And if you know anybody else that understands that we need to dismantle the superorganism and is looking for ideas of how we could do it or just wants to share the journey, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.